I've got, you know, a couple hundred million dollars in the cryptocurrency space. You can't win the presidency when you're honest. The 2024 election is going to be between demented and dementia. Nobody's friends with Donald Trump. Anybody that comes on your podcast, the Raz Report, and says, hey, I'm friends with Donald Trump. They don't know. They don't understand Trump. He's not your friend. Could Bitcoin trade to $150,000 to $250,000? I believe it could. You can go 10, 15 to 20 on an asset. And so a five bagger from here on Bitcoin is $150,000. Hi, my name is Jason Rasnick, the CEO of Benzinga, and welcome to the Raz Report. As always, before we kick things off, I want to quickly tell you about what Benzinga is. Before I started Benzinga in 2010, there were very few places to get real-time information on financial markets. I thought it was unfair that Wall Street had access to this information before the average Joe investor. So I created Benzinga to level the playing field for you, the retail investor. Benzinga is for the people and by the people. Now, let's dive into the show. All right. Excited for this week's edition of the Raz Report. We got none other than Anthony Scaramucci, founder of Skybridge Capital. Um... You know, been into crypto, been into everything, worked for the White House at one point. I don't know if we'll get into all that, but um, Anthony has been around, built businesses, and just a successful guy that was raised from the ground up and, you know, nothing was handed to him. He had to go out and get it. So excited to have Anthony on because I like to hear about struggles and overcoming obstacles and inspiring others to, uh, you know, when they're down and out, like not down, but like just starting from nothing and what you what you become. Welcome. That's good to be here. It's quite that's quite an introduction. You didn't even, you didn't even mention I got fired from the White House actually, so you could have put put that in there as well. How many but, days was that? But I, you know, look, look, it was eleven days, of, and when people say it was ten, it actually hurts my feelings because why would you chip me out of nine point one percent of my federal career? But but you know, look at my friend Kevin McCarthy lasted twenty four point five Scaramucci's. Jason, see that Liz trusts four point one Scaramucci. So it turns out that. Uh, you know, people get blown out faster than they think these days, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that one, you know, one person to go against him. I mean, politics is, uh, would you ever think of running for president? Well, I'm running for reelection in my marriage. So, I mean, I probably no. I mean, you know, I mean, but Jason, I mean, I, I, I could never win the presidency. I'm too honest. You can't, you can't win the presidency when you're honest. I mean, you have to lie to everybody, you know? There, there will come a day, I believe, where America will become exhausted by these nonsensical, self-serving politicians. And if they focus on people that are into public service and really want to help the country, uh, my view may change of that. But I, you know, I would tell people the truth. They wouldn't want to hear the truth. And so therefore, you can't get elected. That's why somebody that's a congenital liar like Trump is ahead in the polls in his party. Uh, Joe Biden at this point is like weekend at Biden's, you know. You, you know, the 2024, ele- the 2024 election is going to be between demented and dementia. Those are going to be the choices that the American people have. Uh, and the demented guy's heading for dementia. So I don't understand why we're doing that to each other. Uh, you know, Diane Feinstein, a great public servant at a time. I didn't agree with her politically. I mean, I'm a Republican, but she is a great public servant. But age 90, dying in the Senate, Nikki Haley's right. You know, we've turned the Senate into a nursing home. What are you guys doing? Give up the power. Uh, let younger, smarter people uh, who are more in touch with the current social zeitgeist run the country and come up with ideas. You guys blew it. You know, we, we, we racked up $33, 34000000000000 trillion worth of debt. 
you mishandled the treasure of the country. Give somebody else a chance, man. So here's a question I have. You, you, you mentioned Trump, you know, lead, potentially leading the Republican, you know, presidential primary, et cetera. You at one point before working there were a big fan of him. Do you think that a lot of these people that were, I mean, I don't know, big fan, but you were a fan of him. Do you think a lot of these people that are, you know, big Trump supporters just don't know him well enough? Like, what, what do you think? It, what do you think it is? No, they don't. They don't care. I mean, you know, remember, you don't. You know, the American people don't have to like you to vote for you. They gave Nixon two electoral successes. You know, they didn't like him. Um, what the American people see in Trump, at least a large group of the Republicans see in Trump, is he he represents their anger. He's an avatar for their anger, their anti-establishment. Um, you know, you and I are talking about Michigan. We both have some roots in Michigan. Uh, the middle class, lower middle class, white worker in Michigan who has been displaced or his factory has rusted out and it moved to some other part of the world, uh, that person's angry. That person feels like their politicians haven't served them well. They have declining living standards. We took families, my own family for that matter. My dad was a blue collar worker. He had a great hourly wage. We lived in an aspirational working class family. Some of us were going to grow up and live the American dream and move classes. Those very same people today are in economically desperational. So you went from working class aspirational to working class desperational in about 35 years. And those people are upset. And so Trump represents them. So he can say, do anything he wants, shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue, get arrested four times, be on trial for fraud. But he represents these people that feel economically desperate. And so the irony of that is that the old school Republicans don't represent that. They used to be represented by the Democrats. You know, Lyndon Johnson represented them. Jack Kennedy represented them. Certainly Franklin Roosevelt represented them. But the Democrats have moved on to like transgender bathrooms and wokeness and, you know, wanting to take down statues of uh, people. Um, and so... You know, those people are sitting around scratching their heads and saying, why are we focusing on transgender bathrooms when I need a job with rising wages and rising living standards? And so that's what Trump represents. But I did like Trump and I'm not going to I'm not going to walk away from that. I had a good relationship with him when I worked at CNBC. He was at NBC. Um, I had a cordial relationship with him. Nobody's friends with Donald Trump. Anybody that comes on your podcast, the Raz Report and says, hey, I'm friends with Donald Trump. They don't know, they don't understand Trump. He's not your friend, okay? He will use you as a tool, and then when he's done using you, he'll run over you with his car. He's not your friend, okay? And he's, he's done a very good job of getting groups of people, myself included, where he's run over people prior to you, but you think you're going to be different, so you jump in the car with him, then he ends up throwing you out of the car and runs you over. But, but even after he fired me, I didn't turn on him. Um, because I saw him as somebody that could potentially fix some of these problems, but then he became impossible. Ultimately, what Barack Obama said about the presidency, there's some truth to it. Whatever your strengths or weaknesses are personality-wise, they get exaggerated by the presidency. And so Trump is a brittle guy. He's incredibly insecure. Um, you know, Stormy Daniels calls him tiny Trump. I'll let you figure out what she means by that. But there's a lot of overcompensation and there's a lot of hyper masculinity in his personality. He wears lifts, as an example. 
So he's not comfortable being six foot. He wants to be six foot two. So he's wearing lifts. I mean, it's just sort of this, this sort of nonsense. So, so yes, those people don't really know him. Now, what I would say to those people, some of them may be listening is they'll say, oh, well, you're mad at him because he fired you. And I'm not, I, I, I took that like a man. I blamed it on myself, my firing. Uh, I did, you know, get pissed off at him when he went after my wife on Twitter. I don't think that that was necessary. That's why I had a fire back at him. I think I called him the fattest president since William Howard Taft because I know he hates being so fat, Jason. So that was fun to spar with him that way. But he, you know, he's just not a good guy and he's not a good executive and he's a dangerous guy. He has impulses that generals or secretaries of state or CIA intelligence officers or directors of CIA would say, okay, whoa, not the right guy to be the president. And so CNN, I'll just finish on this one thought, CNN, 24 people, they listed yesterday, 24 people that were in his cabinet or worked for him that broke from him. And they all said the same thing, you know, that he is an erratic guy and you can't have somebody that erratic, that demented be president. Now, whether you want to pretend otherwise and you want to support him just to stick a finger in the eye of the establishment, that's fine. I tell people, same policies, less crazy. It's like light beer, you know, tastes great, less filling. Why don't we go with somebody, same policies, less crazy? Yeah. So now, so now we're going to move on to investing. Anthony, you've built up businesses, you have funds, you manage over $2 billion in assets. What, what, like, what's your current market outlook, which is rates hitting their highest point, um, stock market kind of falling. I know today, I think we have a little bounce, but uh, what are you worried, freaking out, anything like that? Or what do you, what are you seeing? And I know crystal balls, I mean, this is, yeah. Well, I mean, here's what I would say. Obviously, none of us know. Anybody that pretends otherwise uh, doesn't know. The Fed doesn't know. Uh, The Fed started the pandemic slashing rates, thinking that they needed to do that to protect the economy. Uh, They said that the inflation was transitory. It wasn't. It turned out to be way more secular than they thought. Uh, And I now believe that they're going to get this last piece wrong, too. And again, I'm not blaming them. I think they're actually doing the best they possibly can with the available information. But when you get a little older, Jason, and you work in the government, you realize that these people really don't know that much. You know, it was a 60-40 on bin Laden. They didn't know 100% he was in the House. Turned out he was in the House and made a good decision. It was 60-40. You know, the Fed doesn't really know. They're shooting in the dark a lot. So... Uh, I think they're wrong about where we are right now. I think the economy is weakening, even though the data looks okay right this second. It's lagging data. So you're going to be into the first half of 2024. The economy is going to roll. You're probably going to have a soft recession. I don't think you're going to have a full-on recession, but you're going to have a soft recession. And uh, they're going to have to cut rates. Moreover, you're not going to be able to sustain one plus trillion dollars of interest rate expenses on the national debt. Um, And you know this and I know this and your viewers probably know this or your listeners know this, but let's repeat it. They can never pay that debt back. Okay, so this is such a remind everybody that's listening. There's thirty three trillion dollars of debt. They cannot pay it back. So the only thing they can do is monetize the debt. And so when they inflate. This is the weird thing about these numbers. Because when you when you inflate something, it sounds like you're making it bigger, but it's not. You're making it worse. You're 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 devaluing the money, and you're doing that to monetize the debt. 
Okay, so everybody listening, when you are subjected to inflation, that is a silent form of universal tax. Your government is afraid to tell you the truth, and your government doesn't want to quote unquote overtly tax you because you'll vote them out of office. So they silently tax you by taking your purchasing power away. Oh, by the way, if you're super rich, you own assets. And so you're protected. But if you're not super rich and you don't have any assets and you're like my dad who worked with his time and his hands for his money and didn't really have many assets. I mean, we did own that house, thank God. But he can't catch up. There's no way to catch up because if you give me $1,000, one short year later, it's got $920 of purchasing power. I'm falling behind. I'm not able to catch up. But if I own a house... You know, Calvin Klein bought a house in 1987 from the DuPonts in East Hampton. He paid four-ish million dollars for it. A couple of years ago, he sold it for 86 million. So if you own the house and you're crushing the value of the dollar, the house will go up alongside of or maybe even outpace the inflation. You see, so so this is why, you know, I'm a big believer in the digital asset space because these Supplies are immutable, particularly Bitcoin. Um, they are going to be proxies for gold and other stores of value. And you really can't inflate away the value of these things on that ledger. So so I, I think those things will have value over time. But the government is got no choice. You know, so so let's just go 1971 to 2023. We took ourselves off the gold standard. It was $35 an ounce. It's now $2,000-ish an ounce, 52 years later. And so everybody just pay attention. $2 in 1971 have the purchasing power of a $100 bill here in 2023. And just go look at the math. You'll see that I'm right. We are monetizing our debt. We are devaluing our, our money. And we're making it very hard for the poor and the middle class to catch up. And and so that is raising interest rates, and then you're and then well, inflation going up, inflation going up is what your big thing. Like your dad, inflation going up, the value of his cash goes down. So then the Fed responds by raising interest rates, um, so the economy slows down. Is that the method they should be doing? Well, I mean, that's the playbook. You know, the playbook is you have a fiat currency, so it's not linked to any hard assets. And so a result of which you have to raise rates in order to secure or protect the currency. And so um, if you slow down the economy, that should reduce prices, which will lower the rate of inflation. And so, you know, obviously, if you talk to somebody like Senator Elizabeth Warren, she doesn't like that. She would rather have the... Uh, full tilt on the economy to increase employment. But I think what they're worried about is price stability. And they're worried about a crisis of confidence in the U.S. dollar because, again, the dollar since the end of the Second World War has been the reserve currency for the world. Now, we did three things which have hurt us, and they're now coming home to roost. Uh, Thing number one, we took ourselves off the gold standard, as I just explained. Thing number two, We let the Chinese into the World Trade Organization and we allowed them to link their renminbi to our dollar. Okay, Nixon allowed that to happen. And so 
our dollars coming down because we need to monetize our debt. The Chinese are building all this industrial manufacturing. Their currency should have gone up in value, but it actually went down in value because it was tracking U.S. dollar. So they created an export boom for themselves. Their goods and services became very cheap as a result of that devalued dollar, RENMB. And so they were able to have this economic boom, which brought them into the first world. Okay, now all of that is fine, but it did have a big impact on hollowing out America and creating all this anxiety in this like white lower middle class America. Then the third thing that we did was the weaponization of the U.S. dollar. We made a decision after 9-11 that we are controlling the world's reserve currency. If you're an adversary, we're going to find your dollar denominated money somewhere and freeze it. Okay, or we're going to punish you. We're going to cripple you with sanctions. And, uh, you know, people are mad at me for saying this is why I could never actually be a politician because I'm telling you the truth. The sanctions don't work. Okay, if they're not working in Russia. They didn't work in Cuba. They're not working in Venezuela because all sanctions do is create black market activity. You know, you've got the uh, Indians buying the oil and they're selling it to the Russians. I mean, or they're buying the Russian oil and they're selling it to everybody else. And so, you know, you don't think luxury goods are getting into Moscow right now? I'm telling you they are. Okay. And now maybe McDonald's is out of there and Starbucks is out of there, but big deal. They'll, they'll, they'll sell coffee and hamburgers. You know, it'll just be named differently. So, so you know, the sanctions don't work. Um, now, you'll get a treasury guy and say, oh, no, they do. It's a great book called Treasury Wars. You know, maybe it worked in terms of containing terrorism a little bit. Maybe it worked in terms of slowing down Iran. But, you know, Iran has survived 44 years with crippling sanctions. So you tell me. So Lisa G, who helped arrange us um, on our team, uh, you know, we have this crypto future of digital assets conference. And so if I don't ask anything about digital assets, she's going to go crazy on me. Um, where do you, what do you think, where do you think Bitcoin is at? What do you, I mean, I know you said, I just had Kathy Wood on a couple of weeks ago. She has, you know, a million dollar price target. Um, and where do you see it? And then the next question with that is how did you originally like come to learn about Bitcoin? Like was it many years ago? Like how, how did you come across? It? I know you addressed a little bit about how the dollar and this global thing. So, you know, I kind of uh, understand your viewpoint, but love to hear what you have to say. So. Here's here's what I would say. Nobody knows, but what I would say is if you just looked at GLD, okay, the gold ETF, when we eventually had a gold ETF, $85 billion or so dollars went into it, and it did have a increase in the price per ounce of gold as a result of the flow of money going into it. And so NYDIG, BlackRock, others have these multiplier effects saying, well, if we pushed $100 billion into Bitcoin, what type of effect would it have on the valuation of Bitcoin? And so where Kathy's coming from is Kathy's saying, okay, Bitcoin is a fixed supply asset. It's the only asset on the planet. And Paul Tudor Jones said this to Andrew Sorkin. Uh, I think a week ago with Delivering Alpha, it's the only asset on the planet where we have higher demand, we can't increase the supply. If higher demand for Apple computer, we'll make more stock options. You know, 
we'll, we'll, we'll issue more stock. You have higher demand for gold, we'll dig more mines, we'll find gold, we'll capture an asteroid and bring it down here with more gold. But Bitcoin has a finite supply. So if you increase the demand to the magnitude of what's capable with a cash ETF approval, could Bitcoin trade to one hundred dollars to $250,000? I believe it could, because let me tell you what I know about Wall Street, Jason, and I think you know this too about Wall Street. You sell things on Wall Street. Products on Wall Street are sold and not bought. And so let me ask you this, a seven, eight trillion dollar place like Fidelity, a $13 trillion place like BlackRock, if they get a Bitcoin ETF approved, they're not going to put their salespeople in charge of pushing that product to their clients. And I believe that they will. And so even if they just do $100 billion in allocations over to Bitcoin, which is minuscule when you think about the $400 trillion of market capitalization, Bitcoin should easily get to one hundred and fifty to $250,000. Last point I'll make, you know, Apple, Apple went from a dollar, you know, when Bill, Steve Jobs took it over, Bill Gates gave him some money to get it restarted, most valuable company in the world. Amazon, these things do happen. You can go 10, 15 to 20 on an asset. And so a five bagger from here on Bitcoin is $150,000. An eight bagger is 250. I think it's very doable. Now, People want things immediately and people want things without volatility. And so when things are going down, the people that own them get smashed. And I've taken my lumps. I think there was a, in the New York Post, there's a picture of me sinking in a Bitcoin boat or something like that. I think I made t-shirts out of that. I thought it was really funny. But if I'm right, we could be sitting at 150,000, 250,000 Bitcoin. I think that's the fundamental story behind it. Yeah. I mean, the, the I that's... And a lot of smart people. I mean, I just had Tim Draper on last week as well, and he is very bullish on it. He bought those Bitcoin in that auction like a long time ago, 26,000 Bitcoins. The part that um, like I see, I see it at 27,000, 25,000. It's hard for me to imagine it at 150,000, 200 a share. Whereas like it makes a lot of sense because the government can't regulate it. Right. And it solves problems when I want to wire money. It's better than working with my bank. Like I did the USDC to Bitcoin. Like it was amazing. So it makes a lot of sense. Your point about the ETFs that automatically adds liquidity to the market. And so to me, that that is like the biggest no-brainer part. The one thing I, since you're, you know, markets and been around, and the, the next book coming out, Warren Buffett. You know, he'll say if I own a thousand apartment buildings, I get a check every month. With Bitcoin, I don't. What do you say to that? It only goes up if other others buy it. And I know there's arguments. I just yeah. Well, you know, I'm I'm in Draper's camp, you know, so I'm going to say, you know, I agree with the ideas behind it, I guess. You know, let me let me be the, the Bitcoin bear for a second. Let me play that thesis for a second. So the Bitcoin bear is going to say that uh, this is nothing. It's a cryptograph on the Internet. It's intrinsically worth nothing. And so a result of which it shouldn't have this value and the United States and its regulators should ban Bitcoin or ban digital assets. But then they really just don't understand the whole concept and the whole history of money. I could pull out of my pocket a piece of fabric that has a $100 you know, denomination on it. It's just a piece of fabric. 
philosophically, it's worthless, but we ascribe value to it. Okay. There are digits in my bank account right now that if I wire those digits to the Mercedes Benz dealership, they're going to drop off the car. So what do we have? We have a ledger. We have, we, and we've always had that. Maybe we use wampum or seashells or gold coins. We've always had a ledger between each other. It's a piece of technology that we're using so we don't have to barter with each other. And so if you think about it that way, Bitcoin is a fairly perfect ledger. It's completely transparent. It's fully decentralized. And lo and behold, you have this ledger that we could use together. Okay, and that makes it valuable. The integrity, the trust of it makes it valuable. You see, you hand me that piece of fabric with $100 on it and Ben Franklin's picture. I trust that I can hand it to somebody else and get something for it. And so we've already established that with Bitcoin. It's 14 years old. 300 million people are using it. 300 million people have it in their wallets. Uh, the Lightning Network is making it more efficient to use. And so I believe that this will be a proxy for gold. And forget about you and me because we're, uh, you know, yes, the 20-year-old that's going to be 30 in 10 years or the 30-year-old that's going to be 40, believe me, they're going to be fully integrated. Same way I said 25 years ago when I was in my 30s, hey, the guy 10 years old, my son is going to be fully integrated into the net. And of course, that son is now 35. And guess what? He's fully integrated. And He's way more sophisticated with even the internet than I am. Okay. And the younger kids will be way more sophisticated with digital assets and digital property like Bitcoin than we are. Yeah, totally true. Like, and makes, I mean, that analogy, that's why I thought you'd be able to boil it down to a piece of, you know, like just given the analogies. Um, what is Skybridge doing with crypto now? Well, what am I doing? I've got, uh, I've got, you know, a couple hundred million dollars in the cryptocurrency space. I've got you know a lot of Bitcoin on my personal and Skybridge balance sheet. You know, so if I am right, you know, just the balance sheet of Skybridge will be worth a tremendous amount of money. Um, I have a coin fund. I have a publicly traded ETF called Crypt CRPT. I teamed up with First Trust out of Chicago to market that. It is a digital innovation fund. And so it's got things in there like Marathon Digital or things in there like uh, Michael Saylor's uh, business, Michael Strategy, or, or uh, it's got Coinbase in there. And so it's got publicly traded companies that are linked to digital assets. And so uh, did terribly last year. Obviously, it was a bad year, but it's done quite well this year. And I think it's going to be a great home run over the next five years. Well, that's that. And so like I was the chair of the credit committee for UCC for Voyager. It was uh, which means I had money there. Um, and I think those bankruptcies like Voyager and, the, um, you know, FTX and another one that uh, there's like two more. The, those ones hurt Bitcoin the most, in my opinion, because people don't know where to hold their Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. and, and they're not as smart as you to like have a cold wallet or use Coinbase and they use that. Mm -hmm. And so once that part takes care of itself, the FDX trial, the money, people, money gets returned and people see there's actually more money than they thought that's going to be in these returns. And then people get the trust, like to me, and I, you're way smarter than me on this stuff, but trust is everything. Trust is everything on crypto mm -hmm. because uh, like, I, like 
I see it. Like I see how Bitcoin, Ethereum, like they solve problems. And you, you mentioned the internet, like your son, and he's 30, 30-ish now. Mm-hmm. That's where Bitcoin is today. Yeah, I mean, that's right. hundred I mean, percent. And then your fund is, you know, but you, the problem with that is you have funds and you have to you have short-term returns, long-term returns. And like, you know, and it's like, do people catch on? I mean, if you would have sold, you know, Microsoft back at $10 a share in 2000, you or Amazon, which I sold Amazon just for fair disclosure. I mean, Nita, at $7 a share, which sold for $2,600 would be worth like 1.8 million today or something, you know, like. That's so you have that long term conviction, right? Is that, I mean, that's. I, well, mean, I got that wrong though too. You know, I've sold things too early, and uh, I have like uh, I'll make you laugh though. I have uh, in my children's trust account, I have tax lots for Microsoft from 1991, and let me tell you why. Wow. Okay, I got to tell you why, because wow. Fidelity lost my address when I moved. The statements went into the dumpster fire. And I never got, finally got a hold of it. I said, oh my God, I got a, actually a decent sized amount of Amazon. I mean, I mean, Microsoft, I would have sold it. Okay. I'm, I'm just letting you know that, you know, this is the reason why they say the dead people at uh, Charles Schwab do better than the living. They don't look at their accounts, Jason. Did you know that dead people don't look at their accounts? And so they're just holding good assets for a long period of time. It works, but we have a hard time doing that as people. <laughs> So that is the best point. Like this is where we're going to finish this. That was the best point because my Amazon was with an account called Prudential. Right. And I was 20 years old. I was, I, I didn't even know what a margin was. I was on margin and it was the only stock I had left that had money. But if I, if I lost my address, that $2,100 would be worth 1.2 million. But your point about the dead people. So this like selling VU yesterday, VOO with a Vanguard right. S&P 500 index, right. which maybe I may sold it. I'm like, ah, it's going to, the market's going to fall another 5%. I'm going to buy more later. And that's not the move. You're supposed to just buy and look at it 10 years from now. Right. I, I like when you're buying the S&P or something. And that's your point. Why dead people, I never heard that expression. Why dead people at Schwab have more money than because we, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, that's hilarious. And your Microsoft for your kids, they should be happy with you. That's probably a decent amount of money. Since no, it's a, it's, like- it's a decent amount of money. And it was small. I mean, I bought a small amount, but it turned into a yeah. fairly decent size amount because it was a 30-year run in it. Oh, my but God. During I mean, the bomber years, I probably would have sold it. You know, Microsoft did nothing for 10 years. 100%. 100%. And then it became a spectacular stock again. You know what I mean? Uh, yep. So, I remember. So, I, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, look, I mean, hey. You got it. You got it. You get lucky on something. You got it. Mean, you got You got to roll. You know. And I've made so many mistakes. You know. I had Travis Galanek, the uh, founder of Uber, coming to my office. I think Uber was at a fifty million dollar valuation. I said, "What are you going to do? You're going to send my daughter around in an unknown black car around Manhattan? Are you crazy? To get the hell out of my office? I'll be left fifty million dollars on the table. You know. I, I mean, you know. So I've made a series of very stupid decisions. I'm not going to suggest otherwise. But by luck, uh, I would have definitely sold that Microsoft. It's still in the account because I couldn't find the goddamn thing. Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly, and I I get that now. So your new book is about how you came back. Like what what's the like? I want to hear this real quick about advice you could offer to people. You can talk about you, but how people who right now are struggling with the economy or just mental health in general. Like, is there oh, something? I, I don't mean, know. If I, think, ever, I think I don't know general, if you ever get anxiety. But like, well, first yeah. of all, anybody that tells you they don't get anxiety is lying to you. We all are victims of 
sadness and anxiety and stress. You know, when I got fired from the White House, that was a huge bad day for me. It definitely smashed me hard, but I remained committed to the idea that I could see things through and I could keep going. And I think the message for people is that, uh, you know, is what Mel Brooks once said, you know, Mel Brooks had one of the best lines ever, you know, relax, none of us are getting out of here alive. You ever hear that line? I mean, that's so true. And so what are we going to do? Don't over worry, just focus on today, make today a great day, uh, plan some things for the future, save some money, pay yourself first. Always. I've been paying myself first since I had a, my first paycheck. I give 10% of my disposable income to me. You have a cable bill, you have an Amazon bill, you have a mortgage. I take 10% of my paycheck every month and I pay it to me. I put it in a account. I I may put it in one of my funds. I may put it in a Bitcoin, but I pay it to me. And if you do that for long enough periods of time, you you create a, a safety net for yourself. You know, and if you do that, you'll be you'll be better psychologically equipped to handle the vagaries that happen in life. Yeah, but okay, I love that. That's a money one. When you left the White House, you you were stressed out. Part of your thing is like from Wall Street to the government and back again. Um, beyond money, yeah. do you ever get get stressed? Of course, of course. Yeah. I mean, okay, look, think of that day. Okay, I'm getting fired from the White House. I'm lit up by all the late late night comedians. I'm destroyed by all the cable news pundits. There's 40 papers in the 40 major cities globally that have my face plastered on the front of them with a dunce cap on. And my wife is divorcing me. Thank God we pulled it back together. We didn't end up getting divorced because of what I'm working. I mean, she hated Trump almost as much as Melania hates him. And so it was an unmitigated disaster. But anyway, just to make a long story short, you know, I committed myself to just moving forward. Okay, I just committed myself. Let's go. And I also is a big lesson for people, particularly in the age of social media. What other people think of you is none of your business. And if you start thinking like that, you'll have such a much healthier outlook, such a healthier, much healthier life. That's interesting because I took it to heart. I mean, on Twitter, on Reddit, when I was the chair of the credit committee, which I literally thought about the average Joe and that's what I cared about the most. And I did stuff like, hopefully I eventually can like reveal stuff out of it. People would like say shit about me. And I was like, it took me like, it, like I was like, it cost me more money to be on this credit committee. Yeah. And when people would I say wanna... stuff, I would only read the negative stuff because I was, I was so the opposite. I was Don't doing it. I, I mean, could. you can't let it bother you, man. I mean, that's, I think that's the lesson. Okay. I think that's the big issue, you know? Yeah, you've no, been terrific I, I you to have me on, you know, and I uh, I appreciate no, our appreciate it. man. No, pre- no, appreciate you coming on. Sorry it went so long, no, but oh, you are, I enjoyed uh, it. But you are uh, a wealth of knowledge. Anthony Scaramucci has a book coming out. When is it coming out? It'll be April sixteenth, uh, and it's uh, it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble for pre order right now, uh, okay. and it's uh, from Wall Street to the White House and back. Uh, the Scaramucci Guide for Unbreakable Resilience. Okay, how do you stay in the and, game when other people are doubting you? And he has other books, so go to Amazon because he has a very way, a very engaging way of writing where he relates it. It's like personal stories, and that keeps you in the book versus just lecturing you. So well, it's very, if you haven't read one of Anthony's very books, sweet of you, man. I appreciate it, brother. I have them. Sorry for going so long, but no, you good. wealth of knowledge, and uh, look forward to talking to you. I'm going to come and see you in Michigan. All right, one of my favorite places, my brother.
Yes. Yeah, no, thanks. Thanks again. Be well. All right. And it's supposed to be 30 minutes. Talk to you later. See you, brother. See you. Bye. Yeah, bye-bye.